We'll be reading this morning from Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 to 23, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. So beginning with Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 to 13, I think that's found on page 73 in your pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 to 13. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us listen with reverence and with awe. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And now we'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, which is found on page 1014. 1014. Uh, as you turn there, I think it's particularly relevant to Think on the context with which uh, Peter was writing these churches. We're not the original recipients after all. We're not hearing this as they would hear it for the first time as those in this particular setting uh, to whose needs are being addressed by the apostle. So I think just a brief introduction. Peter is writing to those he refers to as uh, elect exiles in a wide region in Asia Minor. And throughout the letter, Peter speaks of various trials that they endure He says that they should not be surprised by uh, these fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to them. And part of the reason that he's saying such things is because they were being ostracized within their culture. Um, These are both Jews and Greeks within Asia Minor who are uh, living quite a different kind of life that Gentiles, non-believers, would be living. And so they're receiving a, a kind of ostracism, uh, both from a governmental perspective and from a social perspective within their culture. Uh, and as such, they're subject to various insults, uh, maligning and also enticing. The culture themselves not understanding the lives that they live, saying, well, what, what, you Christians, you're so, at least in our day and age, so old-fashioned. Don't you know the Bible is 2,000 years old? Um, So with that in mind, I think it's relevant to know those things as you hear these comforting words that Peter speaks to uh, the people of God. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 3 to 11. We'll just be considering uh, up to verse 5 today for our text. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in this time, you promise to be near to your people. You promise to instruct and to teach us in all righteousness and holiness and to strengthen uh, the hearts, uh, our hearts of faith. So we ask now that you would make this teaching effective to the hearts of your people, that in it uh, they would cling to Christ through all the trials and temptations they endure in this coming week. We ask this in Christ's name, by the help of his Spirit. Amen. I've had the privilege of preaching this, uh, of exhorting this text uh, several occasions to various congregations in California, and each time I've, I've kind of oscillated between one of two introductions, and I just can't seem to pick what I think is the right one. And I think that's the case because I see really two streams of things that are going on here in this text. And the, so the first I relate to a favorite poem of mine by W.H. Auden uh, called Museum of Beautiful Arts. If you're trying to look it up, it, it's in French, so I'm not even going to attempt to, to spell that or pronounce that for you. But you could just look up W.H. Auden, Museum of Beautiful Arts, and it'll come up. Um, and in this poem, uh, Auden endeavors to really describe what he thinks is the nature and the character of suffering. And he says, the old masters, referring to the Greek philosophers, how well they knew its human condition. And by the end of the poem, he, he concludes describing a, a, a portrait by Bruegel of Icarus. Now, if you know who Icarus is, he was the, the little boy who was trapped on an island with his father. They fashioned wings of wax, and they flew up into the air. His father said, don't fly too close to the sun. And like any good boy, he listened to the wise words of his father, and uh, he flew too close to the sun. And Bruegel's painting of this event depicts Icarus falling into an open bay of sea traders and, and various uh, people going about their business. And he says uh, that the ships had somewhere to sail to and sailed calmly on. So this boy falling out of the sky drowning, to this boy, nobody turns. Suffering is an event that's endured in hopeless abandonment to which nobody turns their eye. So that's the first stream. But the second stream that I see in this text is the story of the prodigal son. Right now is all that there is, especially in the midst of suffering in a persecuted and uh, uh, unfriendly pagan culture where we live as exiles, as those ostracized from our community, there has to be more to this inheritance that Christ accomplished. I want more from life now. And I think those are both perspectives that Christians, particularly in the context that the 
church that, churches that Peter is writing to would perhaps feel inclined to think. There's got to be more to the life that I'm experiencing in the present as I'm ostracized within the community. Or does God not care about the suffering that I'm enduring in the present? Where is he? What's going on? So Peter writes as one who doesn't believe that the Christian suffers in isolation and abandonment like Icarus falling out of the sky. And he writes knowing that there's more to life than what we presently experience. He writes to them encouraging in order to remind them there is more, so much more to life than what we endure in the present. And he reminds them, to do this, he reminds them first of the basis of their hope, the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Second, he tells them of the character of their hope, its imperishability. And then third, he tells them of the power that guards their hope. And we'll look at that today in those three ways. The uh, first, the basis of hope in verse 3. The character of hope in verse 4. And third, the power that guards hope in verse 5. So the first thing that Peter says to this suffering church is to remind them of the basis or the grounds or the foundation for the hope that they have. It's completely outside of themselves. Now the first clause in verse 3 shows us this reality in two ways. First... Our hope is according to his great mercy. Now, mercy is one of those words that we hear a lot, but we kind of forget what it means. So, mercy is never merited or earned. Like grace, it's undeserved. But alternatively to grace, which deals with something that we get, mercy, kids, deals with, the, deals with something that we're not given, but that we deserve. What mercy means is that the required Status, the required level of obedience, hasn't been met. We deserve judgment, we deserve punishment, and yet judgment has either been relinquished or lightened. So in the case that it's been lightened, we might think, for instance, on something like a mercy blow. To kill something with less brutality, to ease its pain and suffering, uh, rather than letting it endure excruciating death. In the case that justice has been relinquished, I'll... It means that it's altogether being abandoned. Justice isn't being dispensed. So you might think, again, kids, if you maybe were supposed to do the dishes or to clean up your room while your mother went out to grab groceries and she gets back home and it hasn't been done, you deserve judgment. You deserve punishment. So you might, say, for example, receive a spanking or a timeout or lose your playtime for the day. And yet your parents have decided to be gracious to you or merciful to you, and not give you the judgment that you deserve. But there's also a third option. It's been given to another. You see, God's justice has to be met. Somebody has to pay the debt. Which means that in order for us to have mercy, justice was fully poured out in its fullest extent on another. So grace is a gift that has not been earned. Mercy is a kindness shown in the face of disobedience. That is, those who deserve God's just penalty of wrath, condemnation, and death have not received the judgment that they deserve because justice was poured out on another. So it's an action 
that we don't deserve. The second thing that Peter shows in this text is that our hope is the result of God's recreative action. It's an action which has already occurred. He has caused it to happen, past tense. It's not something that we need to strive for or cause to happen or earn or merit or uh, obey enough in, in order to achieve. It's something we're freely given. And this makes plenty of sense to most of us, of course. We could ask it like this, which of us were active participants in our own birthing stories? We did not generate ourselves, nor did we assist our mothers in our birth. In fact, I think the, most, the majority of us were probably quite painful and, and quite hurtful to that process. We stood in the way. So as passive agents in this project, we, we really receive the kind of mercy, the kind of recreative action that somebody else is initiating and then brings into reality. We don't participate. Here it is God, God himself who has given us rebirth. He himself who has given us new life instead of death and condemnation. And so then we might wonder, okay, well, if we didn't participate, if we didn't do it, if I wasn't the active agent that earned my rebirth, it's something that was done to me because somebody else achieved, who is the active agent that has initiated our spiritual recreation? Well, Peter states clearly, it's, it's not us, but it was through the resurrection power of Jesus that we are ushered into this inheritance. It's therefore fitting then that Peter calls it a living hope, for its object is the one who was indeed raised from the dead and is now still alive. Now, if you're anything like me, you might wonder, you might sit there and say, well, there's a bit of irony in this, isn't there? For Peter to say something like this, for him to describe the resurrection of Christ in this way and our hope. I think back to the apostles' response to Christ's death in the upper room. And then I recall in Luke 24 how Jesus met with several of his disciples on the road to Emmaus and he began to describe to them from Moses to the prophets all the things concerning himself. And he says to them, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer all these things and then enter into glory? And so these apostles he meets with, to these apostles he meets with on the road to Emmaus, it is so inconceivable to them that Christ could be raised from the dead, even though he's revealing to them all of the things that he had to suffer, that they did not recognize who it was that was standing before them. They thought he was dead and that that was it. Jesus would then go and appear to the rest of the apostles in the upper room, who had by this point received the testimony from the these, these, these disciples on the road to Emmaus saying, oh, we met with this man who told us about all that Jesus was to do from Moses to the prophets. It's not news that the Messiah would do what he did. And they were in such disbelief that they thought what was standing before them was an immaterial manifestation of Christ. But Peter that same apostle that denied Christ, that was sulking in the upper room, that couldn't believe the story wasn't over after Christ had died, now calls this a living hope because it is based on the fact that he himself 
saw and touched the living Savior and watched him ascend to heaven to the right hand of the Father. What he himself could not believe with his own eyes, he now proclaims to be the basis of your sure hope. Now, unlike many things that you or I place our hope or our trust in, the certainty in the resurrection or in our salvation is not such an uncertain hope. You might buy a stock hoping that the market will favor your investment. Kids, you might toss a coin into a well and make a wish. We might even wish upon a star. But the hope in the gospel is not an abstract or whimsical hope. It is not dead nor is its object. It is clear, certain, concrete hope because its object is himself alive. He is the firstborn from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father. Testimony number one. Testimony number two. He has sent his spirit to radiate life into the life of his people that they themselves might experience radical rebirth from death and darkness to light and life. This body, this church, the church universal is testimony to the power of Christ reigning at the right hand of the Father and his effective work to accomplish in the hearts of his people his saving work. So hope in our inheritance salvation is a living hope because it brings new life to its inheritors by the one who is himself life and has in himself the power of indestructible life. So we've said then that Jesus is the basis of our hope, that he has caused us to be born again out of mercy through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But we'd be fools to miss the fact that the only reason this hope is reliable at all is because he is living, because he was raised from the dead, and because now he has in himself the power of indestructible life. So it's not just that he is the basis, that his resurrection is the basis of our hope, but it is the object of our hope as well. And it is for both of those reasons that it thus is a living hope. Now he goes on then to, to describe the implications of this as an inheritance. What he's achieved for us out of this is an inheritance. And it's worth noting, as with rebirth and as with mercy, we are passive participants with regard to inheritance. We don't have the deed or the title to this inheritance by our natural birth, but it's something that we're actually, in, it's an inheritance, a, a heritage that we're baptized into through the Son. And so it's right that we would ask, if this is foreign to us, if this is unfamiliar to us, what is the character of our inheritance? You know, if you found out that your parents had a trust fund set up for you, you might rightly wonder how much money you would inherit and when you would inherit it. And so we too wonder at this time, what exactly is it that we're inheriting? Well, Peter indicates it's the full revelation of the new creation that has yet to come. But it's much more than that. It's easy, easy for us to think of heaven as the new Jerusalem, this, this city flowing with milk and honey. The essence of our inheritance is the perfect and perpetual presence with God in that new creation. So we can take a gloss over some of the testimony of the rest of scriptures to see what they say about this. Psalm 16, verses 5 to 6 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. 
You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And he goes on to say, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures evermore. It's a well-known psalm. Similarly also is the other well-known psalms, and the ending of Psalm 73, where it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? On earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. These indicate to us that heaven is nothing apart from God. And so Samuel Rutherford, a famous Puritan, said, Oh Lord, I don't think we normally think like this. Oh my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven for me, for thou art all the heaven that I want. And as another writer noted, heaven without God would be like a honeymoon without a groom or a palace without a king. So our inheritance, our portion, is God himself when we will be with him and, we will, and when we, will, we shall see him. What we long for the most is the unhindered presence of the God of all glory in that new creation kingdom which is yet to be revealed. And so it's worth noting here that that God of all glory, who is one who himself is unchangeable, eternal, infinite, incorruptible, and so much more, we describe him when we think on who God is. We describe him in language that says what he is not. Infinite, not finite. Eternal, not bound by time. We do this because as sinful and finite creatures, as those who are created by God and are finite, infinitely removed from his majesty, we cannot describe who God is in his essence. And so too, Peter, in describing the hope for which we long, uses language that cannot master the object of which it is trying to describe. He uses language that says what the inheritance is not. And ironically, the way that he describes this inheritance is far better than the inheritance that Israel came to possess in the promised land. That land was subject to devastation. It was subject to moral and religious decay, impurity, and it could be taken away, and we know that. But he says that your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is imperishable in that it is not subject to death or destruction, nor is it limited by time, but it is eternal. It cannot be pillaged by the Philistines. It is undefiled in that it is never spoiled or corrupted or polluted, but it remains free from any blemish. So unlike many people might argue, or oceans, that new Jerusalem can never be polluted. It can never be polluted either, not just by trash, but by wickedness, by sin, and by impurity. And finally, it is unfading in that it does not lose its character or quality. It does not wither or fade. So unlike something like, for instance, the Statue of Liberty, which loses its true color over time, the worth and the value of that kingdom never loses its true value. It does not fade. But Peter doesn't stop here in describing the character of our hope. 
He says that inheritance is preserved in heaven for us. And the idea that we can take from that is this. No matter the tumultuous things that we experience in this world with shaky foundations, we can rely upon it, for it is held securely in the grasp of our Father. I think that makes a lot of sense to people in an unstable time, in an unstable kingdom where things are constantly changing, and we don't know what, our, what, will, what things will look like in the future, and we worry about the world that our kids will grow up in. That kingdom is held securely in the grasp of our Father. And so you will remember that God guarded the Garden of Eden from impurity and the corruption of man. So too, in the same way, He guards the heavenly city for which we long. That inheritance is kept safe outside the reach of danger. The devil cannot bring harm into it. So while earthly possessions are subject to constant variation and change, to uncertainty, our eternal one is safely guarded in heaven. And here's the wonderful thing. It's not just that our inheritance out there, ethereally floating for us as we wait for the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth to be revealed. It's not just that that kingdom is guarded. The inheritors are themselves the present recipients of this new creation kingdom in the present as it breaks its way into and intrudes into this evil age. And that makes it a very glorious truth. The inbreaking kingdom power of God guards us in that inheritance. Verse 5. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I think something Calvin says here is exquisitely beautiful. I couldn't put it in better words myself. He asks, what does it help us that our salvation is laid up in, laid up in heaven when we, we are here and there in this world as in a turbulent t- sea? What does it help us that our salvation is secured in a quiet harbor when we are driven to and fro amidst a thousand shipwrecks? The apostle therefore anticipates objections of this kind when he shows that though we are in a world exposed to daggers, we are yet kept by faith. And that though we are thus nigh to death, we are yet safe under the guardianship of faith. But as faith itself, through the infirmity of the flesh, often quails, we might always be anxious about the morrow, were it not the Lord to aid us. Here's what I think Calvin is getting at here. What's the point of having a salvation out there in the future if you yourself can't make it? What use is an indestructible, untainted inheritance kept in heaven if we ourselves are unable to attain it? The point is that by the power of God, we ourselves are guarded in faith to have a faith that actually attains the very inheritance for which we long, salvation itself. That's good news. You aren't just given the gift. You're kept in the gift. You know, Peter's language here is incredibly militaristic. God's power guards faith. Again, I think we can evoke the garden imagery. We who were once supposed to guard the temple garden of God, who were then guarded from entrance into it, are now held up and escorted, or ourselves, guarded back into it, 
so that we might never stumble to the left or to the right or strike our foot against a stone. Satan cannot touch God's new creation. The God of all peace guards his people and protects them from the terror of the night, from the arrow that flies by day, from the pestilence that stalks in darkness, and the destruction that wastes at noonday. Your faith is kept secure by God's power. So no matter how weak we are, our salvation is not uncertain because it is sustained by the power of God. Those then who have been given faith and new birth have faith that is held up by God. Faith, therefore, is secure not only for the present, but also for the future. But the fact that faith needs to be guarded in the present leads us to conclusion that the inheritance, that the salvation in its fullness is still yet a relic of the future that has yet to be revealed. Not that we don't possess it in part, but we don't possess it in fullness. This language of unveiling is appropriate as with the Old Testament saints who saw in veiled form the promises of Christ in the future, so too we see in veiled form the promises of the age that is to come. But our confidence is that as those who have been given new birth, those that he has caused to be born again to a living hope, our confidence is that our names are already written in the Lamb's book of life. And so in this present age, we do not belong. But we belong to the age that is to come and yet is presently unfolding so that those to whom Christ has promised eternal salvation see before their eyes everything that has been promised to them in veiled form, as a present possession that they have the full deed to. So what? We are guarded by faith, by God's power, in the present kingdom, for a kingdom that is yet to be revealed. And that means that we don't despair. As the psalmist put it, though the earth gives way and the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, the waters roar and foam, and the mountains tremble at its swelling, we do not fear. We do not fear because we know that there is a city whose streams make glad the city of our God. It is a holy city of the Most High God where God dwells within her midst and He is not moved in that city. And so too, even though we are not there yet, we are not moved in this city. No, we trust, we long, we look forward to the cosmic unveiling when that morning dawns with great confidence, with great hope, knowing that not only is that city safe, but we ourselves, as we make our pilgrimage there, are kept by God. You know, Auden's poem may have promoted the idea that suffering, that, that suffering is an event endured in hopeless abandonment, but I think that's the worst take on suffering there ever was, especially for the people of God. And I'll tell you why. There was one who suffered abandonment. He suffered the ultimate judgment ordeal of death and condemnation so that you and I might have life and blessing by his resurrection. And he did this so that the gospel would never convey to the people of God 
that God does not look or hear their cries. He did this so that the gospel would never convey to believers that they suffer meaninglessly or in isolation or abandonment. He did this so that the gospel would also never convey to believers that the object of their hope was misplaced or meaningless. We have great hope in our inheritance because he is alive and because of the certainty that he guards us in the present by his power. But much more. The gospel can also satiate or quiet our instinct to be like the prodigal son, begging for more in this life. And it can do this because its focus is on both the inbreaking power of God that gives us life in the present and on the power that guards us in life as we await the full revelation of that kingdom. We have confidence in this day of small things that there is more to come. We have confidence while we live as exiles surrounded by Gentiles that malign us, that hate us, that cause us to suffer not-so-surprising trials. Because we know that this life is not all there is. And so the inheritance of the kingdom may thus be spoken of in different ways, in different aspects. In some ways, it's present. In fullness, it is yet to come. To some believers, the present joys of the kingdom seem much more far off than they actually are. But even the most enthusiastic Christians feel at times the heavy burden and the imperfections of life as it is in the present. And I think in St. Peter, this is the dominant key. And so we must hold firm to the future sins. The pilgrim, the stranger, the sojourner, sees from far off the hope in the promised land. And as he does so, he says, thy kingdom come. And yet all the while, I might add, he says, thy kingdom come. He also sings, in praise, all glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet Hosanna's ring. You are the King of Israel and David's royal son. What, how's the next part go? Now in the Lord's name coming, the King and Blessed One. Now you may have noticed that we skipped over the fact that Peter opens this text with doxology, with words of praise to God. And so I think, much like those Facebook videos, you might see a stage painter who's throwing stuff at the board and then he turns it upside down and, and he, he pats the board. I, I think I want to unveil, unveil to you what I think the true movement of this text is. Before you say, Thy kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer, you ask that his name, the Father's name, would be hallowed or revered or blessed. And I think there's a reason for this, and I think there's also a reason that much of the praise, that the, the psalms are praise psalms to, to God that extol His glory and His goodness. There is something that shifts in the hearts of God's people when we transfix our eyes from the glory and goodness of our God and the surety of our inheritance, salvation. Instead of being so concerned with the anguishes and the unmet expectations and the desires for more in the present, to be focused on his glory, his goodness, and the praise that is due to his name. 
Suddenly, the not-so-surprising fiery trials that Peter speaks of in chapter 4, verse 12, that barge their way in, unwanted and unwelcome, past our locked doors, do not retain their power. Suddenly, the desire and the allure for a greater and a better experience of life in the present, present loses its luster, its draw. No longer do those trials and the glumness of life in the present seem as mountains which blot out the sun, casting dark shadows upon our experience of life, but they become as small clouds whose momentary presence in the face of the sun makes all the more real the warmth and the pleasure of the sun on a cool, windy day. Those fiery trials, those small beginnings of our internal inheritance are but landmark experiences on our journey, which point us forward to that good and blessed country. That's what feeds and comforts our souls. And so we might sing Jerusalem the golden with milk and honey blessed, the sight of which refreshes the weary and oppressed. We may not know what joys await us there or the radiancy of glory and bliss beyond compare, and yet, what does he conclude? We sing the praise unending with all the martyr throng amidst the halls of Zion, resounding full of song. The movement of these great truths concerning the mercy of God to us and the great hope for which we long, the surety that he guards our faith, does something to us. It moves our gaze from the sufferings and the turmoil of life in a sin-cursed world to the praise of of his glory, and of his grace. And this, in turn, cyclically brings us greater comfort by ruminating on what joy awaits us there. And what joy is it that awaits us there? God himself. The object of our praise and the reason for our praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do indeed have much reason to be confident, much reason to be joyful, and much reason to give you praise. And so now we ask that the knowledge that you guard us in faith, that you keep that kingdom securely for us and that we will indeed reach it. Lord, we ask that that would bring us to great praise and joy and glory in your name and that it would encourage us this week amidst the many trials, amidst the many troubles that we experience, but that we would have great joy, great satisfaction, and great marvel at your name. For this we ask in the name of Christ our King, by the help of his Spirit. Amen. Uh, we'll turn